I am Alice Brooks, and I am the cinematographer for Tick, Tick, Boom, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello, and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Alice Brooks, director of photography for Tick, Tick, Boom on Netflix. Alice, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Ben, so much for having me again. There is so much to talk about with Tick, Tick, Boom. Of course, we had you not that long ago for In the Heights. So it's like twice in about like a few month period. So first of all, we love your work and very excited to talk to you about Tick, Tick, Boom because I fell in love with that movie today when I watched it. And there's so much to discuss. But before we get there, I want to quickly mention Filmmakers Academy. Master your craft at filmmakersacademy.com. Thank you guys for sponsoring this episode. And of course, remind you all to follow us on your favorite podcast app, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So, Alice, you were on for In the Heights. Were you working on In the Heights and Tick, Tick, Boom at the same time? No, I wrapped In the Heights and on the actually on our last day of filming, uh, at noon or at lunchtime, I, my agent called and said, Lynn would like to send you the script for Tick, Tick, Boom. It's a movie he's going to direct. And, um, and so, and he wants to meet with you on Tuesday. So suddenly like wrapped in the Heights that night. And three days later, I had an interview with Lynn for Tick, Tick, Boom. And I knew nothing about Tick, Tick, Boom. Um, I knew, uh, I knew who Jonathan Larson was, but I had, um, I mean, I knew he wrote Rent, but that's about all I knew about Jonathan. Yeah, I, I was the same when I went into it this morning. I turned it on and I'm like, I don't know anything about this movie, but I, you know, I, I love your work and I'm like, I'm sure it's going to look great. And immediately I'm like, oh my God, Jonathan Larson, the writer of Rent, this is kind of his story, or at least one of his previous uh, uh, works that's sort of semi-autobiographical. So uh, I immediately loved it right off the bat. And it's it's interesting to... It's interesting to me because Lin-Manuel uh, Lin Miranda just came off of In the Heights, which is his show, now directing Jonathan Larson's show. And there's just like this musical movie world going on now with you and he. And it's like you kind of have your, you have like your own little family going now for these movie musicals. And I think you're bringing such new, great energy and life to this particular genre. I love it. You guys must just be so excited about it. Thanks, Ben. I mean, it, it's interesting you said family because while we were making Tick, Tick, Boom, we kept, everyone kept saying, this is like a family. We really, it was a long, it was a long process making the movie. It was about two years because COVID, we shut down for six months for COVID yeah. um, after filming for eight days. So we all really bonded on this really special level. And all through COVID, once a week, we would have something called Tick, Tick, Zooms, where we would get on Zoom and it would be like every single person, 500, 500 people, cast and crew, every single person was invited. And, you know, you'd have almost at least one representative from each department, usually about 100 people joined. And it was, it really got us through the early days of the pandemic. And then we went back to work and we all just felt so bonded to each other. So it was a family. I can imagine working on scenes like Boho Days, for instance, when everybody's in the apartment and just knowing that this is one of, you know, one of the first productions back after the shutdown and just the life and the excitement of being in the same room with people on top of, you know, creating that scene and just working with that, working with that music it, there, it, there just must have been something so magical and special about a moment like that. That was one of the most magical moments. Um, Boho Days was this magical moment in the middle of making our movie. Yeah. We filled the apartment with people who all had quarantined so they could be in the scene with Andrew Garfield live singing. And so it did feel like a party. I, I wanted to make sure we could move 360 degrees around his apartment. So all, everything was lit with either practicals or light coming from outside so that if, if everyone there felt like they were at a party and no one had been at a party in seven, eight months. Yeah. And the incredible joy it was to be in that space where, you know, it was hot and sweaty and just like a little teeny New York apartment in the middle of winter packed with people. And that's uh, the energy was there. And, and it was, it was wonderful. 
Now, I remember when you were on for In the Heights, we talked about filming in really congested areas. And I know a lot of that was practical. Like you shot a lot of locations practically. Did you also shoot a lot of practical locations for Tick, Tick, Boom? It was a mix, um, but but a, like Jonathan's apartment was built on a, on a soundstage, we were trying to recreate a lot of locations that existed in 1990. Um, and, and so the Moondance Diner was built because it no longer exists in New York. And Jonathan's apartment was built, although it does exist, it's a five-floor walk-up with a teeny staircase. We did shoot in his, it's at 508 Greenwich Street in New York. We shot... Um, we shot in the hallway. So the stairwell looked exactly like the stairwell in the movie. We, that was, that was real. But then when you, they go into the apartment, um, we, we recreated it and almost it's still built to the exact same size as the existing apartment is. So you didn't even give yourself the luxury of having extra space on a studio set. <laughs> I love that. We discipline. did not. <laughs> well, I, in many ways, I, it was, it's such a, it's such a personal story and, and representation of Jonathan. And we knew Andrew was giving it his all while we were film, while we were prepping the movie. And so when we were working with the production designer and Lynn and I were working with the production designer, we all three realized it was really important to be as true to Jonathan Larson's life as possible in, in, in many areas and, and let Andrew have the freedom to be in that space. And I remember the first time Andrew walked into the apartment set and I, I just stood in the corner of a room. It was only a few of us in the apartment. It was me and Lynn and the AD. And I just watched him like tangibly touch things like the lamp above his bookshelf. And, and he was exploring. And while he was exploring, then I started doing the lighting as he started moving through the space. So the, um, so the gaffer was outside and we just started working on it, a camera just placed and we just started working on how we were going to bring the light in based on how Andrew was moving through the space. What did he do while moving through the space that inspired your lighting? It, it just was this feeling of loving his computer and loving his tapes and, and the way he moved through the space and, his connection to everything, including paintings on the wall that were actually really Jonathan Larson's. And Andrew wore, um, during prep, Andrew wore this blue flannel shirt that he wears in the movie in a couple of scenes. Um, but that's actually Jonathan's real shirt. Oh, and, wow. and all through prep, I watched Andrew transform into Jonathan. And, and I remember this one day when I knew it had happened. I was, we were all watching Sunday in the park with George, the PBS um, version that they filmed in a long time ago. And I was sitting behind Andrew and Robin de Jesus. And I saw Andrew look over at Robin and I was like, he became, he became Jonathan. And I snapped a picture and sent it to Lynn. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, his, it must be a little bit tricky when you're portraying somebody that people know of but don't necessarily know their mannerisms. Like Jonathan wasn't really a, a celebrity in the way that, you know, if you were portraying somebody that everybody knows that's like already famous, you're portraying someone that first of all died before they became famous and you also, they, they you don't really see them very much. But they, but I think you guys did a really good job of embodying what we perceive to be. Jonathan, does that make sense? Like there's, there's, there's a thought so about there's what a little he may secret. be like. Yes. Um, so uh, like you say, like us, we have cameras on us all the time, including at this moment in time. And, and if someone wanted to make a movie about us in, in 30 years, they could probably easily watch it and, and reconstruct our lives. But that wasn't true in the nineties, but it was true for Jonathan. Mm. So his friend, his friend, his very good friend, his, her father was a documentarian and she had a beta cam and filmed Jonathan all the time. Oh, wow. And so we had eight years of footage of Jonathan Larson. And so I watched, I just sat for weeks watching footage of Jonathan. No way. And I slowly fell in love with him. And 
and and and so you're right there aren't there there's some great pictures that have existed in the world but but this like intimate portrayal of a person who had a camera on them all the time who never in their wildest dreams would have thought that anyone would be watching this footage and so at the end credits you see real Jonathan Larson and there's a couple of moments but you, we've got footage of him working at the moon dance diner and he worked there until two months before he passed away and we've got video of him in his apartment two weeks before he died where he was um filming every single item in his apartment because he was very scared there was going to be a fire from from that um that heater that would always blow up and so he wanted for insurance purposes to record everything all his possessions so we oh knew God, where everything wow. was and we knew his how his voice sounded but the thing for me um i think i probably told you while i was making in the heights i realized during prep my job was to fall in love with washington heights yeah and somewhere in the middle of prepping tick tick boom and watching this amazing footage i realized my job was to fall in love with jonathan larson and i had i fell in love with his joy and his drive and his persistence and his kindness and and his love of his friends and that was all on the vi- on the videos that we got to watch is that unusual for a cinematographer to have an opportunity or even really be focusing terribly on the be falling in love with the characters like that. I, I don't know if I've really had a discussion like this with any other DP where they talked about their love for the characters as much. There's a lot of obviously like respect for this, for the, for the, um, the talent and the script and the story and all that, but particularly focusing on just one character and really getting to know that character seems very unique. And I'm wondering how that influenced the way that you shot the film. So we we made very specific choices that that felt that sort of fell into place based off this video. The opening and closing shot of the movie are beta cam shots of Jonathan, where we enter his life in this sort of nostalgic VHS quality world, and then and then go into our real camera, and then and then seeing him perform on stage. We had all this footage of him performing at the New York Theater Workshop again, the real Jonathan Larson that that his friend recorded and. And, but her, her footage was always, you know, from the audience. And, but for me, I wanted to be there. I wanted to feel what he was feeling. And I wanted to, I wanted to feel what it was like to be Jonathan Larson on that stage performing Tick, Tick, Boom. Mm. And, and I don't know how other cinematographers do it, but for me, my process what this was my process and it was it was fully jumping into Jonathan Larson's head and story and tell this this story from that point of view i was influenced a lot by this um photographer nan golden who um shot tons of stills in new york she's a new york street photographer and she also did a lot of self-portraiture in the during this period of time in new york i mean she's still a wonderful photographer in new york today but um her her um people could describe her work as a personal journal made public and that's what tick tick boom was to me it's this he, Jonathan wrote Tick, Tick, Boom because he couldn't get his other musicals made. And he wrote his own story. He wrote his life story in Tick, Tick, Boom and then made it public. So it was his personal journey, journal, his diary, his music was his diary of his life. And then he made a public performance of it. And so, and so that, that's where I feel like that was the exciting part is falling in love with some, this person and, and wanting to share that person with the world. I want to talk a little bit more about Boho Days, specifically because it takes place in his apartment. It's a tight, tight area, and you've got a lot of people in there, and it's a set that you built, as you mentioned before. Um, I, I want to talk to you about the way that you approach filming claustrophobic locations, um, mm. because there has to be just so much challenge to it, and there's a great um, sort of benefit to it as well. I'm sure there's there's a real victory in having it work out well. <laughs> So talk to me about the way that you approach that particular scene, the apartment, and your techniques for claustrophobic locations and making them work. 
the sort of the visual language of the film are these tight claustrophobic shots of, of Jonathan. And some of them are these wide angles and we're really close to him. I wanted to feel the ceiling and the walls around him. So he felt boxed in. He felt trapped. He's trapped by the diner. He's trapped by his apartment. He's trapped um, by his girlfriend and he's trapped by, by his best friend being out of being, selling out and like, what are the choices? Susan represents one choice for Jonathan and, and Michael represents another choice for Jonathan. And, and then, and then he has his dream. And so all these claustrophobic shots build up. And so when we do go into his dreams, they are expansive and life is slower and calmer and he can think in scenes like swimming where everything's super, super cutty. And then, when, when you, when he can start, when he sees that 30 at the bottom of the pool, then the age, he's so scared of turning and he goes and he touches it and turns into a treble clef and everything slows down and he can finally hear his music or on Sunday, everything's really, really choppy, cut, 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 handheld, handheld, handheld. And then when he, when his mind finally quiets, we start to widen out and grow and you have these beautiful, big, expansive, bright, sunny shots. And then in boho days, it's that, it is that claustrophobic feeling where, but, but there's some, there's a different energy in boho days because you've got so many people around him that even though you're in this tight space, you know, I think we had something like 20 extras in that very small living room and plus our principal cast. And, and it feels, it feels what a New York City apartment party would have felt like in those days, you know, yeah. when you're 29 years old. Yeah. And there are those moments. Like you have, you have his claustrophobic locations. Everything's tight. Everything's a little constrained. But there's still a warmth and a love there. But when you get these moments of bigness and openness— um, two in particular, I know you mentioned swimming, so I guess there's three, I'm sure there's more, but the ones that stuck out to me were in is, is Sunday is the, is the, um, the number where diner. you're in the, in the diner, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so there's a moment in that where the wall comes down and the set opens up and you are then faced with this wide, beautiful sunlight streaming. It's warm. Things have slowed down. And it really does put you kind of into the mind of Jonathan at that moment. Talk to me about that approach and uh, what sort of led you to that sort of expansive, wide warming shots for those moments. It's, It's probably one of the warmest scenes in the movie, and it's definitely the brightest scene in the movie. So when you're inside and everything's closer... And then when he pushes the wall down and he steps out onto the the wall of the Moondance Diner has now become a theatrical stage. And the sunlight has become basic, uh, the way I, the way I motivated it was it, that sun was a spotlight hitting him as if he were on a stage. And then the gloomy, cold January that we've been in, in this whole movie is suddenly gone. The leaves appear on the trees and and there is this warm expanse, and I we're inspired by um, Sondheim Sunday. Uh, the, the number is inspired by Sunday in the Park with George by Sondheim, which is inspired by the Seurat painting um, uh, Sunday on La Grande Jetée. And and so when they do step out and into that warmth and into that light, I wanted it to have this very painterly feel to it. So we overexposed everything a little and the colors get a little bit brighter and the skin because I overexposed it is a little glossier and it just has, that was the goal is to have this painting inside of New York that, and, and also, but also feel the stage presence of it with the sunlight hitting him and, and, and obviously all the production design elements that come in. Yeah, I I wasn't even it's it's so funny cuz I wasn't even picking up on the stage part of that, but now hearing that back I'm like that is exactly what it was because he was sort of living his dream at that moment. Um even at yeah, the very end. Yeah, it's his fantasy. It, it's and he walked out it, he and it's a, and it's a future he never got to experience too, which is also the sad part, right? He never he never sees Bernadette past that moment in time and he never 
gets to see Hamilton on Broadway, where all these Broadway legends are there in the scene with him. And he, it's a future he never experiences, but it is a future that he inspired. And um, I just got the chills. I just feel incredible, in, an incredible passion for Jonathan. Doesn't it just make you so sick to your stomach that he didn't get to see any of his works really succeed to, to the left? I mean, he was certainly as successful to get to the point where Rent was live and going to be on stage. But to miss out on the uh, impact that he had is just, ah, uh, it just like makes you mad in a way. It's crazy. Yeah. And I... You know, when you asked me about, I, I, I didn't really, it didn't really click till just now, but when you asked me earlier about, 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 you know, telling a story, like falling in love with a character, yeah, it also is, I mean, it's such a personal story to me in so many ways. I grew up in New York city and I was 10 years old in 1990. I, my dad was a playwright. We lived in a tenement apartment, very similar size to Jonathan's with a bathtub in the kitchen. And and I would watch my dad's heartbreak over and over and over again because he was trying to make it in in theater in New York. Mm -hmm. And and then and then flash forward to thirty years later when I'm working as a cinematographer, or I mean, even the last twenty years of my career, and and that idea of never giving up on your dreams, no matter what. And and so that story, so Jonathan's story of endurance and and getting up and dusting yourself off and starting all over again, even in the face of no, 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 is, is part, has been part of my journey too. And, and so that, that connection um, felt incredibly personal. Yeah, I think everybody in this audience, I mean, everyone listening to this is, they're kind of in the creative fields. They kind of get that. They understand that rejection is the fuel of success all the time. Um, and I think that we all here in the Go Creative Show world and just in filmmaking in general can really relate to that story. Even though, you know, he's writing musicals, it is certainly different. But that idea of following a dream and all of the stumbling blocks along the way, all of the closed doors along the way, it's really a great, it's just, it's just such a great story. So Those of you guys that have been listening for a while, you know that I am obsessed with techniques for lighting night interiors. And on Filmmakers Academy right now, there is an entire course on just lighting night interiors, and it's taught by none other than Shane Hurlbut. And I wanted to bring Shane on real quick to tell you guys something about that course. Certainly, go buy the course, become a member, go watch the whole thing, because there's going to be so much information in there. But Shane, give us a little something. Give us something, some tip about lighting night interiors. Yeah, I mean, one of the most difficult things to do when you're dealing with interiors is moonlight sources, right? And uh, because there's always curtains and there's shears, right? Uh, just like there are in most every home. So when you put your moonlight through this, uh, through those white shears, they tend to explode, right? And you're trying to get this fragility of night lighting. So what I do is I just went to Ikea one day and I was like, hey, let me take a look at uh, your stock in silver curtains. With the silver curtains, you can push more moonlight through the windows that doesn't bloom the curtains and you can actually get an exposure on somebody's face, say in a bed. I love these tips, and there is so much more in the entire course. So, guys, you've got to check it out, filmmakersacademy.com, and make sure you check out the course, Lighting Night Interiors. Let's talk a little bit about the tech, uh, the camera package, lighting that you chose. We'll start with cameras um, and lenses. What did you choose for your camera lens package on Tick, Tick, Boom? So we used um, a Panavision DXL2 for our camera, and we shot two cameras mostly uh, because, again, we were in tight, tight spaces, and there were a few three-camera days, for, but for the most part, two cameras. Hmm. Um, and then we shot, we also had a beta cam that we used for the beta cam footage and a Super 8 camera for the Super 8 footage. And then, um, and then oh, lenses, we used um, Panavision G-series anamorphic lenses. 
So you did shoot anamorphic. You can sort of tell because of like the the um, imperfections in the mm -hmm. bottom edges of the frame, which I think really adds to the kind of look of the 90s. It's it's interesting to me because a lot of some people are using anamorphic now. It's a big topic here on Go Creative Show. Our audience is always interested in why people choose anamorphic, what it does for them creative-wise. Um, but there is kind of a, a 90s element to it in its imperfection. I mean, anybody that has lived through the 90s, or at least if you're young enough to, or if you're old enough to have lived through it, or young enough to be now in the 90s revival, looking back at it um, with admiration, you know that there was a lot of imperfections in the film. I mean, in videos, certainly, but even film at the time, there were imperfections in it. And there's something to this embrace of imperfections in a world where everything can be so perfect with all of our technology, it seems like people are really leaning into the qualities of filmmaking that feel that feel tangible and imperfect. Um, are you getting that sense as well? Is that where the industry's going? Yeah, I don't know if that's where the industry is going. I I I, I actually don't look at current movies when I'm making a movie. I only look mm. at older stuff because I don't want to be influenced um, or or do something just because it's trendy. I want to make sure whatever I'm doing serves the story, and so I make sure I'm not watching anything contemporary. Uh, and but in terms of our anamorphic lenses, we took the G series anamorphic lenses and then we completely modified them. So if someone went to Panavision and rented the G-Series lenses, they would not look like the lenses we shot with on Tick, Tick, Boom. Yeah. That, we really pushed them hard. We we wanted them to bloom in this way, and, and we um, did things to the elements which made everything feel a little lifted, a little bit... Um, um, like a, if we were shooting film, it would have been considered a fat negative. And, but, and that was based off of our lenses, but we really wanted it to feel imperfect and, and grimy and dingy. And, and so that those were, when I was talking to Panavision about modifying our lenses, we had conversations about that. I sent them lots of references with New York street photography from the eighties as, as what I was trying to make the lens and the camera, how those two pieces would create this image that I was going for. And something that I read while just preparing for this interview is that because of COVID, you weren't able to use atmosphere in yeah. the film. So you had to compensate through lensing and filtration. Can you talk to us about that? Yes. So we did um, the process with Panavision that they take the lenses and they call it detuning. So they, they, you know, you have a perfectly tuned lens and then they mess it up for us. And, but when COVID hit, we had done all our tests, everything pre-COVID we shot with atmosphere and then we couldn't use atmosphere. And I still wanted things to have that bloom as if there was just a little bit of smoke in the room. And so um, and so, because we, I should say, we were one of the first movies back and Netflix was really, really so wonderful at keeping us safe. And no one knew how particle, COVID particles would move through, through atmosphere, if it would linger longer. And also just being uncomfortable wearing a mask and a face shield and being in a thick, thick, smoky environment. So, um, we, we sent the lenses back to Woodland Hills and, California and they worked on the lenses some more for us. And I actually had one clean set and one a clean set meaning not detuned and one detuned set. And we decided we were detuning all our lenses that the clean set was not going to work for us. And, and then we also um, added an eighth black promise to almost all of the shots as well. And, and did everything we could to degrade the image in camera and make it feel make the light feel as if we did have atmosphere. When you watch back on it and uh, like, do you, do you watch the film now and say to yourself like that turned out even better than I expected? Or do you sort of look at it and say, I wonder what this would be if we had done <laughs> atmosphere. Like, is that, is that something that you are, is that kind of a, you know, a, a, a silver lining in everything that happened? Or do you think back on it in, in retrospect, say, you know, maybe I would have shot with atmosphere. I'm curious. Um, you know, at the time, I was really, really nervous about it. We actually did, I think, three extra days of camera tests before we started filming again. Um, 
because I was trying to figure out tricks to make it feel like atmosphere was in the room. And, uh, and then, and then the space I was most concerned about losing atmosphere for was the New York theater workshop where he's performing on the stage. Yeah. And so visual effects and I, and the producers and Lynn, we all would have these long in-depth conversations about what do we do? And finally, what we did was we shot, um, well, one, I aimed the lights in certain ways. So some of the shots felt like they had atmosphere, but some of the wider shots just didn't look like it. And so everyone, the dimmer board operator stayed, we've, we've filmed seven days and the dimmer board operator kept all my lighting cues. And then a second unit came in and they pumped the space through filled with air, um, smoke and they did different setups. So we had plates for what the atmosphere would have been in each of my lighting setups. And then they were able to marry those together. So the atmosphere in, in, New York theater workshop, even though we didn't shoot with it, with the cast in the space, it is real atmosphere. It's just married. That's wild. So yeah, because you do, I mean, you do see the, the lights you see, you see them in the, yeah. in the show. So yeah, so that's like cool. the cones and yeah, everything. The, exactly. Yeah. So that's interesting. I was, I was assuming there was some sort of visual effect trickery going on because I had, mm-hmm. you know, when, when I heard that you weren't able to use atmosphere, but you can't tell when you watch it, and it's interesting to know that they're that they were plates and not something done in visual effects. It's still visual effects, but you know what I mean, right? They didn't like it's not animated smoke. It's yes. real. It's real smoke. Uh, but but there were. But what was amazing to me, we knew. I mean, it's expensive to add it later, and so we knew there was going to be a fine line between what we could add atmosphere to and what we couldn't, and so the electric team was amazing. Like per shot, we would tip the, the park hands on the side in this, you know, some, to make sure we weren't getting terrible anamorphic flare, but still feeling the bloom. And so we had tons and tons of park hands on each side. And so they, they were really worked it. So in the close-ups, we didn't really use atmosphere at all because we have the bloom from the lights. And you had the black magic one eighth, um, Promist on that? Oh, Is that what you uh, said? Black, not black magic, no. just black, uh, one eighth black promist. Black promist, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it it looks fantastic. You would, like you had mentioned, it really does have that kind of like grimy sort of hot, even though I know it's January, but it, it still has like a, like a heat to it in the interior scenes and a warmth to it that yeah. I think just looks great. Were you considering any other camera package prior to choosing the Panavision? Oh, absolutely. I, um, we uh, we went to Panavision and tested lots of cameras. I always do it before a movie, but I have shot on this camera three times now. I I love it, and I love. I mean, and Panavision has been the most amazing rental house to me since I was in film school. And um, so we went to Panavision, and oh, sorry, I'll backtrack. I asked Lynn, who this is his directorial debut. I asked Lynn, would he how involved he wanted to be in picking a camera and lens. And he said, I want to know everything. And so I went and shot tests and put lenses on and did all shot spherical shot anamorphic. And then we go to on different camera bodies and we went to the lab and it was a blind test for Lynn. He has no, uh, it was amazing because like he has no allegiance to a certain brand or any sort of preconceived ideas about, about different companies. And so he, he, he like the way we picked it, the lenses and camera was what, like I would listen to what he was attracted to. And I don't know if it's because he had been watching dailies for in the Heights for so long and it was the same camera, but in the Heights and tick, tick, boom, look like night and day, like movies. So I want to talk about the way that you approach the New York theater workshop scenes. And then also the, I'm probably saying, I don't remember the terminology, but when he's like doing the superbia, um, uh, was that also a workshop as well when he was doing It's that? very confusing. So the New York theater workshop is the stage part and it's actually just the name of the theater. Okay. And then the workshop is when they're in, um, with that cathed- those cathedral windows. Yes. And, yeah. in the, the white space or beige space with the windows. So in addition to like the musical performances, I guess, for lack of a better word in the show, in, in the, in the movie, you also have like actual performances, one of Superbia and one of Tick, Tick, Boom. And, but they're not presented in a way that people think about 
live stage performances because it's before the show would even hit the stage. So it's, it, you're kind of bringing a unique perspective that a lot of people don't really understand happens in musical theater. So talk to me about the way that you filmed those moments because you're sort of exposing some, like the way that, like the way that people would be exposed to a writer's room or something like that. Like the the kind of behind the scenes work that gets done before the play actually comes to life is what you're highlighting. Yes, and when there, like on day one, we were scouting, and it was December 2019, and he said to everyone, "New York, or the Superbia Workshop." cannot feel like a movie version of what a workshop is. He said, I've sat in workshops for the last 20 years. It needs to feel like a real workshop. He's like, I've never, or I don't know if he said I never, but he's like, most of the time when you see workshops depicted on film or TV, it doesn't feel like what they really are. And so he didn't want like this glossy space. He wanted he wanted it to feel like a, what a space would be like, you know, an empty room with a piano and, and not much design elements in it. And he wanted, um, so, so that realness was really important to him. And then what we did, the work, the superbia workshop takes place over five days. And so all our, all of those shots that we did throughout the workshop are all, very specifically storyboarded transitions to build as, as the musical gets better and grows as the musical gets better. But there are all these sort of lyrical flowing shots um, as, as you hear the music into um, it's called sextet as you hear the music as we would transition through things is to Jonathan's apartment, to his swimming pool, as he's swimming back to the theater. And, and, and we did it in this really flowy, Way. Yeah, and you're saying Lynn wants wanted these um, workshops to feel as authentic as possible, not these glorified kind of movie versions of it. But you still are tasked with making them beautiful. Like they have to, they have to look good. So there's two different looks to these workshops. You have the Superbia workshop and the New York Theater workshop of Tick Tick Boom. They look very different, but they have a similar kind of feel about them. Let's start with the Superbia one uh, because that one, uh, well, we're talking about right now, but also that one I think is the most bare of the two mm-hmm. um, and it's daylit. So and talk to me about the way that you approach that to make it look authentic, but also, you know, make it look rich and feel like it's part of the the, old, the film that you're making. So the movie, I mean, the Superbia starts out somewhat dreary, overcast outside and, and like a gloomy January day where you don't want to be outside. And, and as, as the workshop progresses through the week to the ultimate moment where you see Vanessa Hudgens singing, come to your senses, um, the light starts to get a little bit more magical. We have, we, we, I mean, the way we lit it was we had a huge light on the building, on the roof of the building across the street, bringing it in, but we didn't bring it in at the beginning. We used the fluorescence above to start, and then we started turning those off. And then we started, um, and, and, and then we started just letting the daylight start to feel like it was coming in. And then we started putting the, um, light, the huge light across the street into the window, but we softened it so that it wasn't hard. And then when, when Vanessa sings, it's, you know, full glorious backlit magic. I love that because it all is motivated from the same window, really daylight lit, but you have such a different feel throughout every time that we're in that room. Um, it's a, it's just such a great way of approaching that scene. And I, I love that breakdown. So thank you for that. Now talk to me about the New York Theater Workshop, which is essentially you keep coming back to one performance that is just kind of happening throughout the show. Yeah, so it's a it's a, it's the frame of our movie. It is him on the stage telling or performing Tick Tick Boom, the musical he ends up writing, and he. Um, so we have all this footage of him really performing it and. When Lynn and I started discussing it, he, I said, do we have lighting liberties or do you want it just to look like the video that we have? And he said, no, we do have creative liberties, but I do want to make sure it feels like a guy who can't afford to have a performance. Like we don't, he doesn't have a ton of money. It's, 
It's a one man show. I mean, it's a one night only show. They didn't spend a gazillion dollars lighting it. And so what we did was we actually ended up renting the lights from New York theater workshop instead of bringing in our own. Mm. It was a way to one give back to the theater community, which was suffering at the time because all of theater was closed. Um, and so we rented as much as we could. And, and all, so all the park hands and the leakos on the sides were all the theater and the HMI spot, follow spot. Those were all the theater. And then we put these little birdie lights, footlights at the bottom front of the stage. And those, those were our, or the gaffers on those. So the gaffer on those. So, um, but, but what we did do, so we had a very simple lighting, but what we did do was each song is different. Sometimes the lights are super bright and hot and sometimes we dim them off. So, and sometimes we'd have dim them. So they got warmer. So all of the feeling that you feel all the changes are just simple up and down on the dimmer board. Yeah. And it, and it, it's interesting because you do sort of feel like you've seen two shows when you watch this movie, you feel like you've seen the tick, tick, boom performance on the stage. And then you also certainly have seen the film as well but you're constantly cutting back and forth between a whole bunch of scenes. You, you're always leaping out of, because Tick, Tick, Boom is about his life, so you'd see the performance of it on stage, and then you'd see the corresponding moment in his life that reflects what he's talking about and singing about on stage. So there's a lot of jumping around, and editorially, it's just really well done. But when you have that many cuts, when you have so many different scenes happening at the same time, uh, what sort of challenges does that bring to you as a cinematographer as you're planning your shots? Early on, we realized it was it, figuring out our transitions between the stage and 1990 real life Jonathan and then 1990 music, musical dream world Jonathan all needed to be very meticulously thought through and because we didn't want suddenly for him to be in some musical number in his apartment. And, and so we did work very specifically on transitions, whether it's we're on the stage and we wrap around to the back of the head and then we cut to the back of Jonathan in his apartment and he's, and he's dancing through his apartment with Michael and you're in a, it's the first time you're in a musical number in that apartment or you're at the strand bookstore and it starts with this conversation with Susan and Jonathan. And then the next time we cut, it's a, it's a, this musical performance where, I just, all I did there was select the colors of the books and we heightened them a little when we went to the musical number, but everything there, the choices we made, we decided needed to be elegant, specific, and simple. We didn't want there to be these like tricky, tricky, like trickiness that, that suddenly made you jump out of the movie. We wanted it all to feel completely sewn together perfectly. And it really isn't flashy. Like, I think people have a like an idea of what a musical would be with the glitz and the glamour and the bigness and the over-the-topness. It really doesn't do that. I think the only time you have a slight touch of that is Sunday, when at the end of it, where you have, like, the lights and the, and the um, diner kind of becomes what looks like maybe the front of a theater or something like that. But other than that, it's... It, it feels very grounded all the time throughout the whole movie, whether it's a performance or whether it's kind of the more, you know, traditional film, you know, dialogue scenes. Um, and I think you guys did a really job, a really good job of keeping it grounded all the way through. And I, one of the biggest compliments I get for the movie is from people who say they don't like musicals, but they loved our movie because it doesn't feel like a musical. Mm. Um, and, and so I love musicals, so but uh, and completely love musicals. But but the 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 idea that people who who it's just a genre they don't love can still get into the movie and love it and feel so connected to Andrew or to Jonathan Larson, and that that feels like that it just feels incredibly wonderful when people say that who 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 aren't fans of musicals. What was your favorite scene? To, to shoot. Oh my gosh. Um, I guess swimming was probably my favorite to shoot. You love filming was, pools, don't you? <laughs> I do love filming pools. It's so much, it, they're so challenging. This pool was remarkably challenging. Why? But the reason I love it is we searched for a swimming pool in New York city and 
we're like, this is it because the bottom of the, the there's tiles at the bottom of the pool that look like staff paper lines. And the script actually wasn't written where you see the notes coming out. This was a discovery process. Oh. And we go and we look at the pool. We kept going back and back and back. I take my iPhone and dunk it under the water. And well, it was pre-COVID, so people were all in the pool swimming together. And and I was just exploring what it would be like under the water. And we played the we played the videos back at this at our storyboard sessions. And there was a thirty at the bottom of the pool. And Lynn goes, "Wait a minute." what if he touches the 30, the age he is so scared of turning and it turns into a treble clef. And that was the birth of Sunday where the notes appear. And then, and then suddenly we had to figure out how to make that work. And, and that was one of the challenges that, that Lynn brought to us that we got to rise to. Yeah. That overhead shot of the pool with the lines in there, it was, it was so perfect. I thought to myself, that has to be added in post. Cause it was just it was too perfect. Like, how are you going to find that exact pool? But it sounds like you did. But not only that, it, Jonathan, we found out weeks later after we had been going to the pool so many times that that was the pool Jonathan swam in every day of his life. No so way. when he wrote Sunday, it was about the swimming pool. And, and that's why I felt so connected to the pool. It, it always felt like Jonathan was right there with us, whispering in our ears, guiding us in some direction to tell his story and, and share his legacy. How, uh, what, what is the response you're getting from Rent fans, Jonathan fans, family, friends of his? Um, how are people responding to this telling of his story? Well, luckily we had his sister. She's one of the producers, Julie Larson, on set with us um, every day. And so, and we also, uh, during all the research phase that the art department did, um, we got to meet with a lot of his friends and talk to his friends. And as we started to build and recreate his life and they would give us possessions of his. So like the key, the Casio keyboard was actually Jonathan's oh, wow. and, um, and, and, and the, um, that director's chair in the, in that he sits in at his desk is, was Jonathan's. So, so we got, we, 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 we made sure to include, include people who were so close to him in, in our, in our research. And then, and I think, I mean, I think everyone is wild, who knew Jonathan and loved Jonathan um, and his family are just wildly happy about the movie. As we wrap up our conversation, I want to ask you a question about advice for filmmakers that want specifically to perhaps get into musicals, you know, more music videos, things things that are more music related. Um, you've done at least two of them now, and uh, it, it seems like you've really, you know, tuned your work and your craft perfectly to this style of filmmaking. What advice do you give to people out there that want to get into this sort of work? So this is, I mean, this moment in my life is something I've been working to my whole career. I grew up loving musicals. I watched musicals all the time. We, we were allowed, we had every single Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movie on VHS. And that's what we were allowed to watch when we came home after school. And The Sound of Music, I just watched it this weekend with my daughter. And just all the great classic musicals. We had coffee table books about the MGM musical. And, and so that it was always a complete love and passion of mine to one day get to make a musical, just one. That's all I wanted. And, um, and then I met John Chu in film school and we did when the kids are away, which was a musical short film at USC. And then we bonded over our love of musicals. So I found someone who loved musicals as much as I did. And then a few years later, we started making this series called The Legion of Extraordinary Dancers. And I remember I was at the um, Obama inauguration and I get the first one and I get a phone call from John going, okay, I've got this passion project I want to do. He's like, it's about superheroes whose superpowers are dance moves and we have no money. Do you want to do it? He's like, you <laughs> what need a to pitch. be in LA in two days. And I said, absolutely, I'm there. And, uh, and it was we shot it over three years. It ended up being 30 episodes and we made huge mistakes doing the show and we learned and we challenged each other. And we, we really, it was a sandbox for how do you tell a story through music and dance? 
and and that has led us to lots of different projects, including in the Heights, and then for me, Tick Tick Boom. So the advice there is just the advice jump there in, is jump into a sandbox. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, no matter right, you all you need is an iPhone. You don't need anything except go to. I mean, this was something else I would do is like go to ballet classes and watch people dance and move, and then find dancers that you can just start to film and learn, learn from, because, because it is the only way, the only way to do it is to, to practice. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. Is there like a particular skill set that's uniquely, that's something that a skill that somebody should hone that really would come in handy when they're doing, you know, musical films? Uh, I think, I mean, even if you can't do musicals, any action, Action and musicals are so similar. You've got either a fight choreographer, a dance choreographer, a stunt choreographer, and a dance choreographer, and and the camera becomes part of that choreography. And so, so even doing any sort of action really would also help. Well, perhaps an action film is next in your. You'll you'll be back on the show for some big, huge summer blockbuster. I'm sure that's that's going <laughs> to that be the next be so thing. Fun. <laughs> Well, it's out there in the universe now, so something will happen. Um, Alice, thank you so much. Really enjoyed talking to you. I'm so glad you came back. The film is awesome. Tick, tick, boom. It's on Netflix, and you all have Netflix. I mean, come on. Go watch the film. You will love it. Let us know what you think of the film and this episode. And um, Alice, where can people find you? I know you get your Instagram. What do you want to plug before yeah. we go? Instagram underscore Alice Brooks underscore. There you go. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Alice, thank you so much for coming on Go Creative Show, and I'm already excited for your next big project. Thank you so much. All right, I want to thank Alice Brooks for coming on the show, the director of photography of Tick, Tick, Boom on Netflix. I loved it. You guys will too, so check it out for yourself. I also want you to check out Filmmakers Academy, our sponsor. We absolutely love those guys. The courses are so well done, so much information packed in there, and I'm so grateful and happy that they are supporting the show. Head over to gocreativeshow.com forward slash Filmmakers Academy, and don't forget to get your 10% off discount by using code GOCREATIVE10. You get 10% off of the all-access membership with that, GOCREATIVE10. Um, so don't forget to do that. I also want to thank our producer, Connor Crosby. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. And Dave Siegel from seagullsound.com. He mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. Don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app, as well as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. If you want to follow me and find out what I'm doing, you can find me on Instagram at Ben Console. Thank you guys for joining us today, and we will see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. Filmmakers.